You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. Hello, welcome back to The Investor Way. I'm Sam Ball with my co-host John McEwen. This week, we're going to be discussing Asda, Ocado, Greggs, William Hill, and we'll also be doing a quick book review on, at the end of How to Own the World by Andrew Craig. So, John, do you want to kick us off with Asda? Yeah, so the big news this week has been that Asda has now been sold back, or sort of taken over, I suppose, by one of the UK private equity groups, TDR Capital. And this was at the price of about 6.8, 6.9 billion. Um, so actually only slightly more than Walmart originally bought the lead space grocer for in 1999, which was for about the figure of 6.7 billion. Although it's about the same in sterling, in dollar terms, they made about a two and a half billion dollar loss on the deal. Yeah, that's right. And it's, I think Asda has been sort of a bit of a laggard, a bit of a drag on it for a number of years. And it's been mooted at various points that it would be sold off and that Walmart would then focus more on their domestic grocery market. And with Amazon as a big competitor coming into that, um, just spin off Asda. Do you think it would have um, ever made any difference if they'd rebranded the Asda as Walmart stores? Possibly. Although I think Asda was, prior to the Walmart acquisition, was a familiar brand in the UK. So I'm not sure that people would be chasing Walmart as a brand over here. I mean, sort of looking at the figures, Asda, it, back in 2018, it had generated a revenue of about 23 billion and profit of about 803 uh, million. But it, there's, uh, the last few years in the UK, during the 2000s and 2010s, the supermarket price wars and margins for all of the big four UK supermarkets being reduced, having to compete with the discounters of sort of the German discounters, Aldi and Lidl. So that's for all of the supermarkets has been problematic. Uh, We saw sort of what happened with Tesco's, which is at the moment the largest conventional supermarket in the UK. And they've really had to do a sort of similar to Walmart, scale back the nature of the operations, especially, especially overseas and focus on their core business, which has had the shrinking profit margins and increased competition back in the UK. The 6.8 billion, that only works out about eight and a half times 2018 operating profit, which I guess seems it's, quite low, but if the margins are under pressure, it does make a bit more sense. Yeah, that's right. I mean, certainly with Tesco's, that's trading sort of about two between two pounds, two pounds 30 over the last six to 12 months. And I mean, I personally have uh, Tesco shares and have done for the last seven years. Prior to the accounting scandal with Tesco's, trading about £3.50 and all of the supermarkets have had a quite, well, low priced earnings and have been appeared quite cheap on paper. Uh, but it's really those discounters, the German discounters coming in and disrupting the market that's made them sort of less attractive and squeeze the margins a lot. Oh, so Tesco trades at a PE ratio of 11 and a half. I guess the Asda eight and a half, that's operating profit. So it won't be exactly the same, but it looks like they are around the same sort of area though. They are. And Tesco's has had a big turnaround or at least the foundations for a big turnaround have been laid by uh, Dave Lewis, who came in from Unilever um, a few years ago and sort of cut back all of the less profitable sides of the business. I mean, I think under the previous chief executive, they'd looked at things like 
expanding on what was popular in the early 2000s with the hypermarket model. And they'd have everything under one roof, gyms, cafes, and that really didn't prove to be very successful. And after sort of the last recession, it was more of those sort of convenience stores, the Tesco's Expresses, the Sainsbury's locals, that were where a lot of people were doing the shopping rather than doing these big once weekly, once uh, fortnightly shops in a hypermarket. And also the sort of the expansion into countries where uh, Thailand and uh, Central Europe, which hadn't proved to be particularly fruitful for them. So it was sort of going back to basics, cutting unprofitable lines. So they're not having as much choice which allowed them to compete more on price with those German discounters. And certainly the Tesco's, I mean, by far the largest player. And I suppose Asda has adapted as well and has started doing some deliveries. And I don't think it actually has any of the, or certainly not as many of the local, the small local stores that Tesco's and Sainsbury's perhaps have. Okay. I don't know about the local ones, but I saw that they've got 631 stores and 300 petrol stations. Although presumably all of the petrol stations are, within the big stores um of yeah i would uh, yeah I, i'm sure that would be the case because you don't tend to come across them either yeah. individually um or at any of the smaller stores i don't know actually the breakdown on the revenue streams at asta and how much it makes i assume most of it comes from the big stores i mean i've not had a huge look for it i think it'd be difficult to get because it's, it's quite a small part of walmart so i don't know well exactly, they bother yeah. making it easier easily available yeah 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 so i saw as well the sale was as well as TDR Capital. It was also to the billionaire Isa Brothers. I don't know if I pronounced that right. From Blackburn. Yeah, so they're sort of in, um, well, not not too far from where the company originated in Leeds. But I, I don't know much about these brothers. Do you have any knowledge of them? Not besides what I've read today. They seem to have, so they seem to have a lot of fingers <laughs> in a lot of pies, to say the least. So they've got lots of okay. petrol stations. And then they've used all the yeah. petrol stations to get um, sort of like fast food outlets inside of them or mm. like alongside of them. So I think yeah. they're also the largest operator yeah. of KFC franchises in the UK. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I suppose you have the Costas in there, everything that you expect now at the modern kind of service station. Yeah, it's that sort of thing. It looks like almost, the growth must have been on steroids because they started with like one petrol station 20 years ago and now they're worth about mm. three point something billion. I think it's between the two of them. I did read yeah. though, that their their EG group is actually loss making, and it's got a lot of debt. And the credit rating was actually mm. recently downgraded. And it's the fourth biggest oh, borrower awesome. in Europe's hundred billion euro market of collateralized loan obligations. Gosh, that's doesn't necessarily bode well if uh, the forecasts are going to be right for the UK economy. I guess I, I think it's difficult to achieve the level of growth that they have had over the past twenty years without taking on a significant amount of debt. Um, yeah, so yeah, far yeah, it yeah. seems to have worked for them so Asda's going to be run separately to EG Group which is uh, the brothers business but there was mm. talk of it potentially being merged in the future to reduce the, the overall amount of leverage in the group because the, the mm. debt as a proportion okay. of assets would then be smaller the profitability of Asda coming in I think would be quite good for the group overall as well but initially it looks like it's going to be run separately and I'm not sure how much it's the ISA brothers and how much is of the equities come from TDR yeah, I'm from not the sure, uh, private either. equity group. I did see as well yeah. that the 6.8 billion sale is actually lower than the proposed value in the Sainsbury's merger last year that didn't go ahead. 
Oh yes, of course. Because that, I mean, that was something uh, Tesco's had bought Booker, and the competition markets authority had approved that. And then there's this, yeah, like you say, the Asda Sainsbury's, which never materialised. Yeah, it was that Sainsbury's executive, wasn't it, that was caught? Recorded <laughs> singing I'm in the money or something. Yes, that's right. You couldn't write the script. No. Um, no. Yeah, so I just thought it's interesting because I guess given the current climate, maybe it's harder to actually go ahead with the sale or get or find a buyer. But I'd have thought that Asda's possibly more valuable than it was last year, just because you've got all the panic buying and it's it is in an industry that's not been certainly negatively affected by COVID-19. I know there's some extra costs, but it's not no. like it's not like a business that's been shut down for months on yeah. lockdown. So I am surprised no, by that's that. that's right. That's true. I mean, one of the things I suppose that you might think is that a lot of money comes from the deliveries. And I think it's it's not not strictly true. I think there's a lot of costs in that and they maybe break even, but I'd, I'd have to see a breakdown of those figures. But it's certainly not um, as profitable as you might th- think by seeing you know all the delivery vans and how much that's increased. I, I mean, uh, the figure I think was something along the lines of across the supermarkets, maybe eight percent of people were doing online shops before uh, before the coronavirus and now it's moved up to sort of the 13 14 percent mark yeah i saw that and as well what i thought was interesting was it took over 20 years to get to eight percent and then six months to go from eight percent to yeah. 13 yes that's right that's right but i suppose the before you'd never had anything in living memory like a, a lot a proper lockdown i mean i suppose it's probably last time you'd have anything close would have been the second world war i guess um, yeah in the uk these online trends the acceleration of them has really been prompted by uh, the government imposed lockdowns so going back to your point as well about how they don't really make much money on delivery if anything i saw someone refer to it as like equivalent of having a car park where they don't make any money without a car park but they, they still need to have it because without it the customers can't get there and that's they said that's what it's like with delivery because you, it's very rare that you get a customer that only buys online. So if, if you deliver to them, even if you're just breaking even, the idea is the hope is that they'll then come in store occasionally and get other stuff as well that you actually make some money on, which is surprising. Yeah, yeah. But I, I can follow the logic there. And Tesco's and some of the other supermarkets, but particularly Tesco's, have their club card scheme. And that has quite a lot of loyalties, quite a lot of deals um, and is useful for the company itself because they get so much uh, well, I suppose personal information and shopping habits, shopping trends from that. Would you be interested in buying Asda shares if it's if in two or three years' time it was they were to then try and list it separately on the markets? It's a possibility. I mean, it would obviously depend on the price of it. I, at the moment, I do hold Tesco's, but I wouldn't be opposed to um, another well, another food retailer. Yeah, my concern would just be with the private equity element. If they float it, it would possibly would be with considerably more debt than it's got at the minute. You'd have you'd have to see. You'd have to see. And I, I mean, TDR Capital. I think they've got David Lloyd as one of their companies. Which, for anyone who doesn't know, is a sort of gym, health club. I think they have racket facilities as well. That's a company that you. Well, in the current environment with coronavirus, whether that's something that may well suffer and if people have changed their trends and we talked about peloton a few weeks ago and if they're doing more from home and not necessarily returning to gyms and certainly not premium price gyms so how that'll impact the company as a whole so on the topic of online retail 
or grocery retail, I should say. Ocado is another big player. And actually, this week, it topped the valuation of Tesco's to become the UK's largest grocery retailer at about a market cap of just over 20 billion. It's later retreated in the week, so Tesco did end the week as the largest. But Sam, what, what do you know about Ocado? So I've heard quite a few people talking about it in the past. I've not heard particularly positive things. My understanding was that so I, I, just, I did have a look as part of this. It was the first time I'd ever looked at it properly. My understanding is it's, it's an online supermarket and it's, it's just meant to have better technology. Is that, or does it do something I, else? I think that's, I think that, <laughs> well, th- th- this, is, this is a sort of ongoing debate and controversy as what exactly Ocado is. So it, it sort of, there was a tussle at Tesco's earlier in the year with the current, or, the outgoing chief executive, Dave Lewis, because his bonus was based on, well, one of the factors in it was uh, how competitive and how successful Tesco was being against the other grocery companies in the UK. And Ocado was, had always been part of that in the previous, well, previous results and previous uh, markers for his bonus. And then in the la- at the last shareholders meeting, it was excluded and that meant that Tesco, that in comparison, Tesco had outperformed against the other grocers. But for this, it had excluded Ocado because Ocado is now being considered a technology technology company rather than an online grocer. And certainly, in terms of the share price, it's year to date about a hundred percent. So, just to confirm, what what do they sell? What do they sell? Is so, it groceries? They, so yeah, they do have their own groceries. They have a deal with Marks and Spencers where they are doing the delivery and using their technology. But they're to, not a grocer. They're not, well, they describe themselves as the world's largest dedicated online supermarket with a quarter of a million, uh, a quarter of a million active customers, and they account for a fifteen percent share of the UK online grocery market. And that, that sort of, and they are also in pet food called Fetch, which is online as well. So M&S have a fifty percent stake in them as well, don't they? I th- yeah, that's my understanding. Yeah, so M&S had paid seven hundred and fifty million for a fifty percent stake in online uh, in Ocado's uh, retail division. Seven hundred and fifty million for fifty percent of that- the online retail division. So what's the rest of it? <laughs> You know, I'll possibly keep some of this in because it shouldn't it shouldn't be that difficult a business to understand. <laughs> to try Googling what do a cardo do? <laughs> there are lots of questions. What do people ask on Google? Who do a cardo deliver for? So we know it's MS at the moment. Is a cardo and waitrose the same? They're two separate companies. Cardo is an online-only retailer that currently buys groceries from Waitrose and Partners and other companies, presumably M&S, and delivers them to shoppers from its warehouses. Maybe if I go onto the Cardo website, I can see what I can actually order. I'll just bear with it. My view is, if it's that difficult to understand, stay away. Be buying it. Okay, so I'm on the website now. It has its own brand of Cardo products that you might get at any other supermarket, and then. It also sells M&S food via Ocado. So I suppose they probably just do the logistics and the delivery. And then they've also got this pet store called uh, Fetch. I think it's their, their own brand. 
uh, and Ricardo, but then most of the products seem to be by, you know, pe your pedigree, Troutons and Purina and all, the, uh, all of the things that you might expect to buy in other retailers like Pets at Home. So what are your thoughts on Ricardo and then... I'll jump in. With uh, to be honest, I don't understand it. So I'll be staying away until I have some understanding and I may may look at it again at those point at that point rather. But I, I'm really not clear what the, the sort of revenue streams are for it. And uh, if I can't understand that, then it's not for me right now. So my view was when you said that you wanted to talk about Ocado because it was in the news and it had passed Tesco as the largest supermarket or grocery retailer yep. in the uk the first thing i looked at was the market cap which yep. had had hit 21.7 billion during the week yeah i know you said they had 15 percent of the online shopping market but yep, if you right. just looked at the food retail market in the uk as a whole they've only got 1.7 percent market share which i would yep. say is the figure that should be used um yep. I tried to look at what they do. I couldn't really get beyond the fact that they would, all I could see was they just seem to be an online supermarket with good, good technology that's possibly better than the competitors. And so you could argue there's maybe some premium worth paying for that, although I don't understand the technology enough to comment. Mm. Then I looked at the numbers. 2019 revenue was 1.75 billion. So it's trading at well over 10 times sales. Mm. So for that amount of a premium I would expect high revenue growth before I look at anything else. So in 2017, sales were 1.45 billion. They mm -hmm. increased 10% in 2018 to 1.6 billion. And then they increased 9% to 1.75 billion in 2019. So that is pretty much the end of my analysis because the revenue growth was just too slow, I thought, given the multiple it's trading at. I think yeah, yeah. because there's so little tech in the UK, it maybe gets away with it. But I think if this thing was trading in the US, it'd get absolutely hammered. I also thought as well, even if it is able to carry on increasing market share, grocery is a low margin business anyway. So I don't, I, I just don't understand why it's valued like a tech company, because even if you believe it can continue growing at the rates it needs to, I don't think the profitability ever gets there. So I know you said you'd be staying away from it, but unless there's some sort of complete change in the business, I don't think I'd ever be interested in it. I, I can't believe it is as expensive as it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a comprehensive conclusion there. Yeah, so I'm sure there's more to talk about, but as far as I was concerned, it was that was the end of my analysis. It's not a company I'd be interested in looking, looking further at. at. So, I think yeah. I think it's it, it's one we can sort of uh, come back to see how uh, see how it performs in the next few well next few years. And, yeah, we can we can go uh, back and criticise it again. If the share <laughs> price doubles and proves us wrong. Yeah, that's right. You not not shorting it. No, I'll, I'll leave it. I, I'm I'm very surprised that people are willing to pay so much for this thing, given how slow the growth is. Yeah. That's, that's just me. Yeah. They've got a couple of mergers and acquisitions. Acquisitions, I think. It's William Hill's been in the news. Yes. So as well as the Asda takeover, we've also got William Hill that has agreed a 2.9 billion takeover by Caesar Entertainment, which equates to about £2.72 a share. And what do you think of that? Is that good value for shareholders, William Hill? It's, depends when you bought it. If you bought it in March, you'd have bought in at, <laughs> you could have bought in at 28p a share. Wow. So you're looking at like a nine bagger in six months. The current, <laughs> the current market cap is 2.92 billion. And 
the takeover offer is at a 57.6% premium to the share price at the first approach. So yeah, that's the huge, huge premium. Yeah. And as well, they actually raised some capital in June at £1.28 a share. So it's over double that. So it looks like shareholders are getting a good that, deal. That presumably was diluting current shareholders. Back I, didn't, I didn't look any further. I was just looking at the share price in comparison to the takeover okay. offer. So yeah. I'd assume it did, but I, I don't know 100%. So the reason that Caesar Entertainment have wanted to do this takeover is that William Hill are actually one of the market leaders in the American sports betting market. And that's only something that's, I know it's been legal in the UK for years, but it's only just starting to get legalized in the US states. Yeah, so I was quite surprised about that. It is strange, mm. given how free market they are over there anyway. But yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know much about that market, but you, I, it's probably yeah. going to be a lot bigger than the UK's, isn't it? Because I mean, yeah, we've got, we've had it over here for years. Certainly, uh, the in-play betting that's been available f- from a number of UK companies and William Hill is one of those, and like you say, it's uh, within the sort of the sports sports markets. I mean, you can practically bet on anything. Is do you know in terms of the William Hill? Because we still do have William Hill sort of betting shops on the high street do you know what sort of uh, whether the revenue comes more from their online business more from the stores itself themselves i didn't look at a breakdown for it um, okay so i think they've got about 1400 stores from memory okay so a significant proportion had come from that so it's, it's a company i've not i've never been following too closely i know that a couple of years ago was there, some, there was a legal change, wasn't there, to do with the slot machines? Yeah, that, the fixed odd betting machines, which I think for a, most of um, most of the online, or not online, I should say, high street bookies uh, would get a lot of the revenue from those. And then, yeah, they, I think they limited the maximum stake you could put on them. So that uh, line of revenue, I suppose, was vastly reduced. Yeah, so I, th- I think... Was it about 2018? That probably something, yeah. Because from about 20, from about 2018 to 2019, the, the share price was cut in half, and then it dropped to a further low in March, and now it's coming back up because it looks like the US market is is making up for that. One thing I yeah. thought was interesting: it looks like it's likely the non-US assets are probably going to be sold. Yeah, and I suppose that you've got other high street um, bookies that would presumably be looking to buy them and yes. integrate them to their own portfolios. Yeah, so it did, it did look like they weren't going to be short of suitors, but it, so it looked like Caesar Entertainment are mainly buying it for the US presence. I don't think they're yeah. particularly bothered about the UK assets. Yeah. Which, which is fine. As well, Caesars already actually have a 20% stake in William Hill's US operations. Okay, so they're familiar with the business prior to this. Yes, yeah, so they, they obviously know what they're getting well, into. Acti- I shouldn't say familiar, actively involved in it. Yeah. So the 2019 earnings for William Hill, they were only 10.7p a share. So, mm. and, I mean, that was down 48% from 2018. But I guess that's the first full year without the, without the slots. I'm assuming that's why that's happened. Yeah, because yeah, tw- 2018 was a very bad year for them after. So I, they must have been one of those high street bookies that were particularly reliant on them. What is that? It's, it's well over 20 times 2019 earnings. Yeah, it's about, I think I, about... 24, yes, 24 I, gu- I guess I guess the, the argument would be that you expect them to grow significantly as the US market grows and they become more involved in that. So I guess whether or not you think it's a good deal depends on how high your hopes were for the US side. But I think it looks like quite a good deal, really, for all parties. Yeah, I suppose as a shareholder, from a shareholder point of view, it very much depends on when you bought the shares. I think 
if you looked at I think the peak in 2013, you'd have been about four pounds sixty four. And now, what, what did you say the uh, latest offer was? It was two hundred and seventy two p a share. Two hundred and seventy two. Yeah, has the offer been recommended to shareholders or? Oh, it's, it's subject to a shareholder vote, but the board have approved it. They're recommending it. Yeah. Yeah. Would you ever be interested in owning a bookie? Um, on paper, it, it, it can be attractive, but I think for other reasons, I, I, I wouldn't be investing in that sector. What about you, Sam? Yeah, I don't, I can't say I'd have any particular ethical concerns. I think if it was at the right price, I'd, I'd probably be interested in owning it. Have you been pro- looking at any I'd, others? I'd, no, it's, I'd, it's not a sector I follow closely at all. Um, I do own a tobacco company okay. and I, w- I would be interested in adding, for example, Diageo at the right price. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think if, if I've got tobacco, if I'm happy to have alcohol, I don't really see an issue in throwing gambling in as well. I mean, um, I think certainly Diageo is one of the few quality companies in, in the UK. And now that bars and, well, I suppose you have more bars than your pubs, but are reopening it, that's certainly uh, good news for the company. Speaking of alcohol, Actually, I yes. did some frontline research for the podcast this week. Okay. So where did you go? It, well, it was in relation to Fever Tree. So I actually tried oh. one of the new drinks. What did you think of it? So I tried the the blood orange, whatever it was that you talked about the other week. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. This, this one of the soda drinks, yeah. Yeah, I didn't really like it, but I don't know if that's because I didn't like blood orange. So I, <laughs> okay. if I like blood orange, it might have been very nice. Um, yeah. Did, I you, also, did, you have, did you mix it with anything? Or did you no, have I just wanted to try it on its own. I also okay. had uh, tried the cola that they do. Oh, yeah. What did you think of that? I thought it was better than Coke. Really? Oh, well, that's... So that's probably more to do with me than the taste. So I don't really like normal carbonated drinks. I think they're just a bit too fizzy. Whereas that was, <laughs> it was, more, it was more lightly carbonated. So you knew it was carbonated, but it was, yeah. it was much lighter. Um, yeah, so yeah. I, I thought that was much nicer. So yeah. I would have it again, but it's like £1.70 a bottle. Yeah, it's, so it's, it's not certainly not cheap, but they, not. they are going for that premium end. You, I, do you, do you like gin pre- tonic? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. If I wanted I suppose... a premium cola and I wasn't, if I wanted, in fact, if I just wanted a cola and I wasn't yeah. concerned about the price, I'd yeah. get fever tree every single time. Yeah. I, I, mean, I, I must say, like I think that. if having a gin and tonic, I would opt for fever tree over sweeps. they've got that sort of some of the subtlety and they've got mediterranean tonics and they are they are very good and the branding is very slick see if you if you try any be sure to mention it on the podcast <laughs> so it's the kind of sacrifices that we make for our listeners <laughs> yes that's right that's right um, uh, will, you, will you try micado shop uh, i'm not sure i'm willing to try that <laughs> <laughs> I don't do any online shopping, actually. You're, you're in store. Well, that's maybe yeah. a, prob- a problem for Ricardo. Well, we, used, you over. we did it. At, I, I think it has improved since then, but we did online shops at uni. And the problem I had yeah. with it was like, if you ordered anything that was fresh, you get the stuff that go off in like two or three days. Whereas in the store, you'd get stuff that goes off in like four or five days. Yeah, I've certainly heard anecdotally that that's a problem. Um, but that, that was like five years ago. So I think they have addressed yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they give you sort of guarantees that you're going to get the freshest so you don't have this problem. Um, certainly with Tesco's orders I've done in the past, I have had that um, once or twice and I've called them and they've 
sort of refunded those items, but it's just a bit of a hassle. So on to Greg's then. So, I mean, Greg's a bit, a bit of a darling of the stock market uh, over here in the UK for the last few years. Um, but what's happening now? So they are currently in talks with unions to try and prevent further or to prevent job losses. That's, yeah. that's, that's pretty much the entire story. Never um, good news. No, I, I would hope the unions are going to be fairly understanding because they have been hit quite hard as a result yeah. of the lockdown. But like you say, they were one of the darlings of the stock market in the UK. It looks like the share price, and even in the last maybe it's like six years, it's, it looks like it's been a four or five bagger. No, it's, it's it, been it huge. had been. It had been it, up, it, up it, until it, March. For anybody who doesn't know, Greg's is essentially a baker. In the last, it was probably about five years ago, they did rebrand themselves a lot and went more upmarket. They started doing coffee from the bean. They'd have more sort of deli options as well as your regular sausage rolls. And, and the then, vegan. Well, hold on, Sam, hold on. And then this was really turbocharged um, a year or two when a year, a year or two ago when they came out with the vegan sausage roll and they expanded the market share even more than they already had um, with that sort of uh, move up market. That and caused a lot of offence, the vegan sausage roll, didn't it? It, co- it caused offence. I think it, it got a lot of people saying, oh, why can't these vegans and vegetarians just get their own snacks? Why do, if they want a sausage roll, they should eat a sausage. <laughs> okay, well, that aside, I've met many omnivores who have been going and, you know, they, they can choose the regular sausage roll, but they're often going for the vegan one. I think Piers Morgan didn't like the vegan sausage roll. I think it, it, hurt, it seems to hurt his feelings. <laughs> I haven't actually tried it myself. I've had plenty. I tried it. I thought it was fantastic. Did you? Well, I, thought it was, I actually thought it was better than the normal sausage roll. Even yeah. I'm, I am a, an omnivore, as John omnivore. says. <laughs> a, a proud meat-eating man. A proud, yeah. You're a um, carnivore. Exactly, a carnivore. That's, I just <laughs> eat meat. But yeah, so I tried the vegan sausage roll. And if you have the normal sausage roll from Greg's, they're nice, but I think they're really flaky. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like just bits just sort of fall off. Whereas with the <laughs> vegan roll, it was a lot firmer. So that was why I preferred it. I thought the oh, texture gosh. was a lot better. Yeah, um, which makes all the difference. It does, yeah. And if the taste is minimal, the texture yeah. is what decides it for me. So I, I yeah. thought it was good. So yeah, so going back to Greg's, they recently announced their results for the six months to July 20, I think it was. Yeah, that's right. That had a pre-tax loss. July, sorry, July 2nd, but yeah, go on. July 2nd. Oh, no, I meant July 2020. Oh, sorry. Okay, yeah, yeah, July 2020. Go on. Yeah, but July 2nd, 2020, <laughs> and they had a pre-tax loss of 65.2 million compared mm. to a 36.7 million profit in the prior year period that well it's because of lockdown they were they were shut for months and then since reopening i was actually surprised by the amount the light flight sales have bounced back yeah very surprising so they since reopening they said their like for like sales had averaged 71.2 percent of the prior year and in the last four weeks they've actually gone up to 76.1 percent of the prior year which i think is really good considering yeah it sounds much better than you know the numbers that would, had come out of Pretz, um, where they certainly weren't expecting, and I don't think it had gone up anywhere near as much as that. 
yeah, I, I, I think that's that's very high, which obviously it speaks to the quality of the business, I think. And I, the other thing that crossed my mind was, I mean, Greg's based in Newcastle and expanded out, so they're all over the country now, but they're more in the north. So I don't know how much, whether it's, let's say, Pret is more southeast, although we do have the stores across the country, whether it's more people in the southeast not returning to the city of London as much, and that's why Pret is worse hit by this. And perhaps in the north, on the northeast of England, that's happened less, uh, and that people have returned, well, physically returned to work more than some of the uh, white collar jobs in the city. Yeah, possibly. So they've actually got 2,039 shops. I didn't realize it was that many. That many. It feels like if you're living in Newcastle. It does, yeah. If you're in a northern city, like you can't cross the road without seeing another like, Greg's. Yeah. Um, um, Leeds is quite bad as well. Or not bad, but there's, <laughs> there's a lot in Leeds. They've got the 24-hour one in Newcastle, don't they? They do. And they also uh, got, I think there's some sort of deal they had with uh, Deliveroo. So you could then have Greg's during lockdown delivered to your home. But obviously it uh, doesn't make up for anywhere so that, like what they normally be selling. Um, yeah, so I, I saw that they're actually, they're, acceler- they're trying to accelerate their click and collect part of the yeah. business. And they've also started doing delivery with Just Eat, but delivery currently only makes up 2.6% of sales. Yeah. Which is hard though, because I just think like, if you're going to get a takeaway, you're not going to get a Greg's, are you? No, well, it's, it's more a sandwich than a sausage roll, isn't it? And yeah, maybe, maybe if you're at the office and you're not yeah. in the town centre and you're nearby, you'd get one delivered for your lunch. But I think that's, I mean, I just, I wouldn't dream of getting a Greg's delivered on Just Eat. No, and you presumably you'd be paying a fee for the delivery, which yeah, and if when you you're just a couple of pasties, yeah, and a, a meal deal might I can't remember what the last time I went in is maybe about three pounds. So to add, yeah, a couple of pounds onto that, yeah. So I I think really you need you need to be in store. They they are relying on people coming back to the shops. I think that's that's what they, they are. Um, which I suppose it depends on what your outlook is on how coronavirus will or the situation will develop or progress in here and what our response is to it i actually think eventually they will get there i think i don't know how long but i mean it does look like a quality business so i guess it depends on how profitable they're able to be if they stay at 70 percent of previous level sales for i don't know let's just say worst case scenario a couple of years yeah that's right if they can do that profitably then I, i think they'll be fine because it, yeah. it, does, it does look like a quality business. So I saw they've got a market cap currently of 1.28 billion, which is after the share price has basically been cut in half. Mm. The share price is 12 pounds 62. I think it was as high as 24 pounds before lockdown. And for the year ended 28 December 19, they had earnings per share of 91p. So yeah. 91, and that was up 28% from 2018. And it looks like the earnings per share growth, it, it's been it's been crazy considering it's, it's a pasty maker really. <laughs> i mean fine. yeah looking at looking at it yeah operating profit about 50 billion 2014 then 2015 73 75 26 uh, 2016 72 and then uh, 2018 up to 82 and then 2019 115 uh, million and it looks like they've been paying a nice dividend as well um so it's yeah. about 30p a share for the last few years so i think at about £12.50 where it is now, I think if you do think it's going to bounce back, I think it's it's very cheap. So very I mean, cheap, yeah. You'd be getting like, what, 
two and a half, three percent dividend in a business that's been growing very nicely over the last few years. Yeah. I mean, do you think that dividend's going to come under threat though within the next year? If within the next year, if yeah. You don't bounce, yeah. My 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 argument was more that if you think it I think if you're happy to hold it and then in one, two, three years time when we're back to normal we or whatever the new normal is, yeah. as long as you think they'll be able to go back to previous levels, I think if you don't mind a little bit of pain for a while, I think it it's a very good chance to buy a very good business. Do you see it as a value a value play right now? Possibly. I mean, I don't think it's because, you know, the, the value of the assets or anything are undervalued, but I do think it does look it does look cheap and I think it, it, I, I think it will be going on the watch list, actually. I think it does look like it's a nice yeah, business. I agree. In two years' time, I'd be surprised if we're not very close to previous levels. And even if we're not with population growth and stuff, I think like ta- there's always going to be some role for town centres and they've got the shops in like train stations and other places as well now. And I think particularly in the north, we'll always love a pasty. <laughs> and a vegan sausage roll. Exactly, and a vegan sausage roll. I, I like it at the minute. Yeah, no, it's certainly at the current price, it's, it is tempting, isn't it? Right, so I think that brings us to the end of all the stocks we were wanting to talk about this week. But mm. of the ones that, uh, that we talked about in detail that are publicly listed, so mm. we had Greg's Accardo and William Hill. Forgetting the, the takeover, which has been agreed for William Hill, if you had to buy one of the three, which one would you go for? Greg's without doubt. I, I would completely agree. Uh, which one uh, would you? Uh, which one would you buy last? Uh, William Hill. You'd buy Ocado before William Hill. Well, I just—it's uh, probably more the industry that, of William Hill that I wouldn't uh, be particularly keen. All right, but ethics no, aside, it, 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 okay, on the quality okay. of the business. Okay, okay. So it it would go Greg's, William Hill, and then Ocado. But Ocado potentially jumps to second because because I well it's because yeah. of ethical I mean reasons. yeah 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 um, but okay. no, aside from that um, I don't like Ocado. Is um, that I, do you see a scenario where you'd ever buy Ocado? Uh, I could never say never, but I, I just see it as very unlikely. No, I I, I, could, I could be proved completely wrong, and we could see the share price um, and the business develop over the next few years, and regretting that we never bought it, but. I don't know if you'd regret it though, would you? Because if you don't understand it, you shouldn't be buying it. If you buy well, it and you don't yeah. understand it and you get lucky, I don't know if that's even yeah, a good thing. No, uh, I agreed. It, no, it's, it's not exactly it's reinforcing the right lessons. No, no, that's true. No, it's it's a company I'm not interested in, but agreed. I'll happily follow it and just oh, see what I, happens. Yeah, I think it's, it's going to be an interesting company to observe because if it delivers on what it said, it'll be interesting to watch. And if yeah. it doesn't deliver on what it said, it'll be really interesting to watch. Yes, um, yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm sure we'll return to it at some point. At some point, for sure. The other thing we wanted to talk about was I wanted to do a little review of How to Own the World. So it's a book by Andrew Craig that you read and then you bought for me for my birthday and I've now <laughs> yes. since read. The book, for anyone who's not read it, is it's, I think it's a book, it's, it's fair to say it's aimed at beginners and it, it covers the whole portfolio and and how you're meant to get into investing. And basically it's trying to say, this is what you need to know to go out and beat the market, really. The things that stood out to me, I thought overall his ideas regarding allocation were interesting. I particularly thought his comments about commodities were interesting. And that is something that I will be looking at further. So I've since added a book on commodities to my watch list because it's an area I've currently got no exposure to. And after reading that, I, th- I think it is actually, I think it is worth having. Do you have any thoughts on that? No, that, that was the bit f- 
from the book that stood out particularly? I thought the title of the book was interesting and I, I, I suppose was broadly advising buying in de- or ETFs and mimicking the whole world, the global portfolio. So you can now do that or you have been able to do that for, um, well, I, I suppose since Vanguard was set up, but it's become even cheaper since then. And you're essentially paying minimal platform fees, whether it's Vanguard, BlackRock or a number of others to uh, to own whether it's 90, 95% of, uh, I suppose, the capitalised world markets for a, a minuscule fee. And then the other side of it, like, uh, like you were saying, Sam, is the allocation to commodities, which in the past is not something I'd ever directly had. I mean, I've had exposure to commodities through listed companies, but not com- pure commodities. Um, and I think his argument about hedging yourself against inflation via commodities is well i i think it's a very attractive one yeah so he makes a strong case for it yeah so so the general principle i think of what he was saying was that you need a globally diversified portfolio and that should be made up of uncorrelated assets because the idea is you then get the high rates of return but if the assets are uncorrelated, you should it should be a lot smoother. So it's actually quite a similar approach to Ray Dalio. I don't know. I, I've read quite a lot about Ray Dalio. Um, I don't know how much you've read, but I, I feel like if someone made me, I'm aware of him, and I've I, read little bits. Yeah, I, I think the two of them would probably get on. <laughs> <laughs> it's very similar. But Ray Dalio is also excellent. Um, so he's definitely worth researching as well. He also had some comments on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, which I thought were quite interesting. So his overall comments were basically that there, there was, he, he talks about this in the book, so I'm not going to go into a massive detail, but he, he sort of comes to the conclusion that the cryptocurrencies are highly speculative assets. You don't know whether or not they're going to do well, but really it, it is just gambling, he says. But he, he does go into Bitcoin in some detail and he comes to the conclusion there is some merit in the argument for Bitcoin being a digital gold, which I would agree with. So he then said that if you were interested in Bitcoin, because it's so speculative and volatile, he wouldn't recommend a high portfolio allocation. But he said he thought one to five percent was sensible. Um, and I completely agree with that. Although depending on the size of your portfolio, I'd, I'd say you could go up to 10 percent. But it's very, very high risk. So I'm, I'm talking mm. if you've got a very small portfolio and you want more Bitcoin exposure. But I think, mm. say, say you have a, a large portfolio, so say like 100 grand or more, mm. I think 1% to 5% is very sensible. And the larger mm. your portfolio, I think the, the closer that allocation should be to 1%. Mm. But I, yeah. I completely, I, I thought his, his arguments, I thought, although he said that he wasn't interested in it because it was speculative, I thought it was very clear that he'd done the reading and he... I, I felt like he knew what he was talking about, um, which is what led him to such a sensible su- suggestion. Because most of the people who would say don't have crypto in your portfolio or Bitcoin, they've not you really read much about it at all, and they just they're just sort of shrieking, "Oh, it's it's gambling!" And all yeah, this. But yeah. I, I thought he came across as very well read on that. And were there any other points that stood out for you? Yes. So there were a few things in there that I disagreed with. And I, I would actually go as far as to say it was outright dangerous to have them in a book for beginners. <laughs> so what, what were these points then? So mainly it was the way he said that you could outperform the market by mm. spread betting and trading options and derivatives. Oh, yes, I thought to even, yeah. I thought that, you know, if he's going to make the argument that, look, there's fundamental analysis, there's technical analysis, 
if you want to go off and do technical analysis, you need to learn more about it. Here's where I'd recommend you go. I think that's fine. But to just sort of talk about it so generally and make yeah. out like it's this easy thing when you yes. where you're going to go in, you're going to do some options and you're going to like hundred extra money. I think a lot of people could come away from that book and try it and get burned. I just, I don't yeah. even think it should really be in there for beginners unless you're saying yeah. here are the resources you need to go to. He starts out by sort of, I mean, maybe a sentence saying, this is quite risky, but then goes on to outline it in such a way that it's, yeah, like, like you say, it sounds easy. Um, and then the, the, I think it's dangerous to have it. Yeah. In there. I was surprised at that because it sort of goes against the tone of the rest of the book. It's sort of at odds with it really. Yeah. I don't know why. I think maybe because he wants to like cover everything, he felt like he had to include mm. it, but I, I don't think it has any place in a book for beginners unless, you, <laughs> yeah. unless you're just sort of mentioning it and saying, here's where you go to learn more. Because um, yeah. I think it's a lot, I think it's a lot easier as a beginner to read one book and go away and buy an index fund and do well than it is to read one book as a beginner and go away and start trading options. I think yes. they're two very yes. different yes. things. That's right. Um, That's right. So the other thing, I thought at times he talked the book up a bit too much. He was like, after you've read this book, you're going to be able to go away and do this, <laughs> this, and this. And I think it was a good book and I thought it was good for beginners, but I do think there's a, just with the way he talked it up, I thought he was almost creating this potential problem where people come away thinking they know a lot more than they actually do. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think for example, he does with like fundamental analysis, he kind of explained. Yeah. Oh, it massively oversimplified. So explained in a few pages and then you, you're sort of essentially told now you're ready to go out and just, buy some socks yeah which... and i think to go out and start doing it with those few pages uh, although it's maybe better yeah. than nothing i think to, yeah you know, they're suggesting with really simple analysis that you're then going to go out and beat the market what yeah. i would say in his defense to that point is that he did recommend throughout the book a lot of other resources and he had the bibliography in the back yeah i guess that's what you'd say in his defense yeah that's true Sorry, primarily advocating index funds you know e etfs essentially and this sort of the fundamental analysis and I don't know how much technically does talk about um but um yeah the rest of it is a smaller part of the book but obviously it's it is mentioned there was a there was a chapter on technical and he was talking about like you know he, was, he had the graphs and everything and like looking at the volume and Mm. Yeah, which I suppose if you if you sort of treat them as two different types of investing, technical and fundamental, I think it, you know it does deserve to be in there. It's just my issue is the fact that people then to say, like you said, with the fundamental, right now off you go, you're ready. Yes, that's yes. where I had the issue. Yeah. Um, so there was one other point that I wanted to talk about. Okay, so here we go. I'll just read out the whole paragraph. Yeah, and we can discuss it. If you look at many decades of stock market data, it is abundantly clear that in the long run, no company should ever be worth 25 times the value of its sales or a few hundred times the value of its profits. Any that do trade at these levels are doing so because there are a sufficient number of investors who do not understand this truth. The share will eventually come back to earth, losing most of them a lot of money. Buying these sorts of companies simply isn't an investment, it is gambling. People who are informed investors, therefore, tend to leave these companies alone, given that there are thousands of others for which a sensible analysis can be made and an informed decision reached. So I, I completely disagreed with that. Um, <laughs> and I, I think, firstly, like, like I think we said when I sent it to you, if you're talking about never or always when it comes to investing or probably anything else, you are 
almost certainly going to be wrong. Yeah, that's right. And I suppose you can think a lot of the sort of US tech sector and some of the big, well, now biggest companies in the world would have started or did start out with very toppy valuations, but they grew into them and they proved that they were worthy of uh, the high multiples early on. It depends what your attitude towards risk is as well, because they do have toppy valuations. So any missings in uh, earnings sales are going to potentially have a much larger impact on the share price than if you do have a more conventional old world company. Hmm, but I think to say it never makes sense to buy oh, a company yes. at 25 times sales, it's just, it's just not true. So for example, if you've got a company that's at 25 times sales, say revenue is growing at 100% a year, I think that's a company that's certainly worth, certainly worth looking at. Because if the share price stays the same, in a year's time, it's only going to be at 12 and a half times sales. And in the year after that, it's going to be 6.25. And if, it, if profit's growing as well, or it's got very high gross margins, I think it's a company that's certainly worth looking at. I do think 25 times sales is probably quite expensive, but I think for the right company with the right growth, I would be willing to pay it. Generally, for growth companies, I'd prefer to play, pay a lower multiple of sales, but it's not something I'd ever rule out. I think, you know, I think there's probably been times when Amazon at 25 times sales has been a great buy. And whilst you'd say, oh, well, Amazon was the exception, I think there probably are a lot of other companies where that's true as well. So I don't know what the price to sales of Etsy is at the moment, but I own that. And I think the growth in the last quarter's growth, it was at a rate of, I think from the top of my head, about 132% compared to the prior year. Yeah. And I mean, that, that's a company that deserves a premium. And I, I just think to say that you should never pay 25 times sales and particularly to say hundreds of times earnings, I think that's even worse because I think with the earnings, if you get a lot of companies where they're making a loss initially and they're going out and they're doing this growth and it's a very high margin business like software as a service, for example, mm. and what happens is they get to a certain scale and they can just flick a switch and turn profitability on because they can stop the sales, they can stop the marketing, and they've just got this product that they're selling to people where they're paying for it every single month on a subscription, and maybe say the gross profit is 80%. But in those yeah. early years, it will trade as negative price to earnings or a price to earnings that is in the hundreds or the thousands because it doesn't make any earnings. It's, it's, yeah. it's kind of like Amazon where it, it could have at some point stopped growing if it wanted to, and just it could have been quite a profitable business, but it always plowed it back in. So I think to say yeah. that you should never pay hundreds of times earnings, I think, depending on the company, I wouldn't. Yeah, de depending on the company, because if it was, a, a say, a Unilever, you wouldn't dream about no. paying that much. But as, I guess it's largely limited to uh, the tech sector. But even, even Ocado, so if we go back mm. to that, that was trading at, like, what was it, 11, 12 times sales? Yeah. But it was growing at 10%. So I, mm. I thought that, was, that, didn't, that didn't stack up for me. If it had been growing at 50%, I would have been willing to look further. And I, th I think yeah. it's, it's, I think to just say that really, that suggests he's got a style of investing that he's using and he's just completely discredited this other style, like the growth style compared to the value style. I actually went on to his website after reading this and he has, he essentially runs uh, his own, well, uh, his own investment fund and it's almost exclusively index funds I think with some gold in there, but from looking at it, I don't think there were any individual stocks. I mean, that's, it makes sense. It agrees with what he was saying in the book, I guess. It, um, it does. Yeah. Yeah. But over, overall, I don't want that to take away from the fact I thought it was a good book. I didn't yeah. like it. I thought there's some interesting ideas. 
if you were a beginner, is it the first book I'd recommend? It's probably not, but I think it is a book that's worth reading. And I did think it was a good book. I wouldn't say it's the only book you ever need to read on no. investing, but there's, there's certainly some interesting ideas there. I thought particularly in relation to commodities. And I did agree yeah. with the way he talked about portfolio allocation. Yeah, th- that, that was the takeaway for me. Yeah. So yeah, so I'd, I'd give it a solid six out of ten. If I was <laughs> six if out I, of ten. If I was a beginner, it would probably have a higher rating. But because I've read so many books at this point, like there were a lot of elements that, that seemed quite basic. Because I mean, yeah. I think you've got the same thing. Once you've read a certain number of books, you find the the ones aimed at beginners are all talking about the same stuff over and over again. It's good to reinforce that view, but it does mean you end up getting less from it than someone who's reading that as their first book on first. investing. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But I, yeah, overall, I, I probably recommend it. And particularly just looking at the aspects from the sort of portfolio allocation, including commodities, because I think one of the things you come across when reading investment books, on the whole, it'll be heavy equities, tiny amount on bonds, usually why uh, <laughs> successful uh, fund managers don't like them. And then there's yeah, almost never anything on commodities. And I think they're seen as quite, you know, literally dead, you know, in the sense that there's no uh, return on them. I'd say with yeah. the exception of gold. With the exception of gold. Have you re- I, get have that. You... I think that usually gets talked about more positively than other commodities yeah. do. I mean, it's, it's, but it's, there's usually not that much analysis of it. It's kind of just stuck in at the end, yeah. allocate 5 to 10% in precious metals or, or so, something like that, rather than actually going into why that might be important and the sort of rationale uh, accompanying it. The book I added to my reading list after reading Had to Own the World, it was the one called Hot Commodities that he recommended. Um, okay, I haven't. Yeah, I haven't come across. I'll have to. I'll have to get that. So, I mean, it could be a while before I get to it because my reading list is typically quite long. But I'll, <laughs> I'll talk about that whenever I do get to yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about you? Are you reading anything? At the Not minute? reading anything currently, um, but I'm looking for recommendations. If you have uh, one for my next book, Sam. Have you read Hundred Baggage yet? I haven't. I think you should try that. It's, it's uh, Chris Mayer. It's very. Okay. It's, I mean, it's it's not your style of investing. But I think it, I think you'll find it interesting, and it is. So he, it's it's yeah. a bit different as well. It's not talking about the same things yeah. as some of the others. So he just he disagrees with Craig on the. 25. I think he would. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. I mean, he runs a portfolio of like that's got like just ten stocks in it. Yeah, because if you if you want to outperform the market by that much, you have oh, to have course. a highly concentrated portfolio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very very interesting read, but it's definitely okay. at the other side of the spectrum. Yeah, uh, if you're just if you're just buying the index, you wouldn't. No, but I think never... it's use, it's useful to know. I think it's useful. To oh see no, no, no. But what I was going to what I was the point I was going to make was uh, with Craig's book. If you are just essentially buying the index, then you're always going to be underperforming it after fees, even yes. if the fees are small. Which it, it, I mean performing as the markets performed especially if you look at the S&P 500 is very respectable but you're never going to beat it if you're just buying it yeah but i mean you just i guess you don't need to if if you if you're happy with the the, the time if you've got a long time horizon and yeah. you're not really interested in it i think it's definitely the way to go yeah but that's right on indexing i i i think i'd recommend Malkiel Malkiel's book <laughs> yeah no, we could that, that we could uh, we can go into that next week. That's a, well, I'd, I'd actually I do want to reread it at some point because it's that good, and I keep recommending it to people. Y- yes, um, yeah, so I think true. when I've reread it, I'd be happy to talk about it. Right. So, is there anything else you want to talk about, John? 
Uh, no, I think we've I think we've covered a lot this week. I think we have. Yeah, re- um, re- retail heavy. Retail heavy, heavy. Yeah. Right. So we'll see you next week, folks. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the Investor Way. To get in touch, please follow us on Twitter at tiwtweets. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Neither Sam nor Jonathan are financial advisors. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors.